We are continuing our study in 2 Timothy this morning. If you want to go ahead and flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 4, we'll be in verses 1 through 5 this morning. I'd like to read those for us, and then we will we'll work our way through together. Paul, again writing to Timothy in Ephesus, says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. You'll remember that as we finished out 316 and 17 last week, that, that Paul was building really a theology of the word. He wanted us to understand exactly what scripture is. Now this is something that he's been writing to Timothy about for quite some time. If you go back and you read through chapter three, you'll recognize that Timothy grew up with a familiarity of the scriptures. Likely his, his mother and his grandmother are in there and they're teaching him uh, the Old Testament, they're teaching him these things, and then Timothy and his family come to faith at some point later, and he reads the Bible in, in what we'll call a decidedly Christocentric way. He sees Jesus as the center point of the scriptures. And so he's flipping along, and he sees Jesus in Exodus. He's flipping along, and he sees Jesus in Deuteronomy. He's flipping along, and he sees Jesus in Psalm 2, in this description of who the king will be. Timothy is instructed to read the scriptures in such a way as to read Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Well, last week, Paul let us know what exactly is God's role in creating the scriptures. Verse 16 said, all scripture... All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. Scripture is, is, is the handiwork of God. That's what Paul informed us last week through his writing to Timothy. But we see this week Paul turns from building up this theology of what the word is to the what to do with the word. And so in chapter 4, he tells him summarily to preach the word. But look at the great audience and the stress that Paul puts on it before he gets into verse 2. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. We recognize in this that, that Paul is setting the stage in some ways for Timothy. He's setting the stage for him. Imagine this. I can always remember it, it was very different reflecting upon the advice of my parents than when my parents were actually there telling me to do something. Now, my, my brother, who's six years older than me, was very good at, let's just say, paraphrasing dad, right? We lived overseas, and, and occasionally my parents would go out of town for an extended uh, weekend. They didn't know the things my brother had in store for me. And, and my brother would say things like, well, you know, mom and dad put me in charge, and this is what that means. And he'd spell out a variety of things that were going to be pretty unfortunate. 
But it was always very, very different from what mom and dad would have actually told me. And I'm sure none of it included locking me in the bathroom for hours and saying, if you come downstairs, it'll be your last trip downstairs. You see, but as Paul opens up this deal, he tells Timothy, he says, look, imagine, if you will, that God and Jesus are peering down and they're seeing these things. Timothy, this charge I issue to you has their authority, it has their stamp of approval, it has their seal, and it has them as witnesses of this thing. Timothy, this is where the charge comes from. And who is this Jesus that Paul writes about? See, Paul wants Timothy to understand the lasting impact. He wants Timothy to understand what is going to happen in the end. And so he has this phrase, he says, it is Jesus, the judge of the living and the dead. And you flip over to 1 Thessalonians 4, and in verses 16 and 17, we can read these words. For the Lord himself, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Timothy's in the middle of a disastrous situation. He's in the middle of, of, of heartbreak, ministry angst, people chasing all kinds of different errant belief sets, and he writes to Timothy, and in some sense, he gives him this promise that it is coming to an end, that Jesus is still judge, and he is judge over all those who have fallen, and all those who will fall, and all those who will still be alive, it is coming. He writes to him, and he says, Jesus matters, and Jesus is the one weighing in, and Jesus is the one that gives such import to the charge before you. He says, look for his appearing, look for his kingdom, work out his kingdom here. Now let's look at the first command that he gives to Timothy in verse 2. He says quite simply, preach the word. Preach, preach the word. Now, when I was at Southwestern, some New Testament scholar no doubt decided it would be the very cool, the very hip thing to do to print out black t-shirts that in white letters spelled out preach the word in Greek. Uh, man, that was neither cool nor hip, but a lot of people wore them. And so, and, and you could really tell the people that didn't have a whole lot of social lives based upon the frequency of them wearing that shirt. But, but, but think about this. Paul doesn't just say preach. He doesn't just write Timothy and say, uh, uh, Tim, find yourself preaching. He gives him a very specific thing to communicate. He says that Timothy is to preach the word. See, this is why Paul has been building this theology of what the word is, what the word does, the change that it has affected in Timothy's life, the change that it is bringing to those in Ephesus. He tells him in no uncertain terms that the sum and substance of his preaching should be the word of God. His preaching should, should be so full of Jesus that there's no room for anything else. His preaching should be so full of Jesus that it isn't merely a laundry list of all those things that excite Timothy, but it is in fact the word of God when Timothy opens up his mouth. He's communicating to the church the word of God. Now this idea of preaching, what is that? Well see, that's some of what he begins to break down. But it's at least verbal. It at least makes sense. 
It's something more than standing and encouraging people. It's something more than stirring their passions. It's something more than correcting them. You see, it is all of these things come together, but the base of what it is is communicating in a verbal manner the word of God. I've heard people tell me over and over again, why? I preach the word of God in my life. And, and my favorite thing is, is Matt, that we should preach the, girl, we should preach the word, and, but really we should just live it out. Use words when necessary. You've heard that quote. See, Paul's got a decidedly different understanding of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Your life should mirror the word of God. And that's without question. But imagine if on April the 6th we walked up to doors in our community and we opened the door and we said, I want you to watch us for five minutes. I just, I just want you to watch us for five minutes. And so we go over to the door. We're walking down there and we're saying, look, everybody act the right way. We need them to watch us for five minutes. And so we go over and we, we knock on the door, we ring the doorbell, they come out and I say, look, I want you to observe us for five minutes. When the five minutes are done, we're going to ask if you want to receive Jesus. How do you think that's going to go? Man, we're going to get a really weird reputation in town. I hope nobody takes that idea. You see, if, if we just invite them to come out and, and observe our reputation, and that's a pretty intense observation. If we're doing that for five minutes on their doorstep, I mean, they're going to see Mitzi, they're going to see Ben, they're going to see uh, John, they're going to see Dee, they're going to see Harry, they're going to see Larry, they're going to see Ken and Joel. It's a little creepy, though. I don't know that they're going to stay out there for the full five minutes and watch. See, preaching's got a whole lot more to do with communicating the word of God than it does simply thinking that people are going to observe the word of God lived out in your life. Now, you can contradict the word of God in the way you live. And you can support the word of God in the way you live. But you're not going to communicate the word of God in a saving way simply by living it. No matter how bold or brash or however you are, the word of God needs to be communicated, needs to be so verbally. Now, Paul writes Timothy here, and he says, Tim, preach the word, but when? He says to be ready in season and out of season. Now, there is a, a season for a lot of things. And if you're a hunter, you recognize there is a bow season for deer hunting. There is a rifle season for deer hunting. There's a black powder season for deer hunting. I don't do any of those things. It seems like a lot of work, and so I dove hunt. And there's a, there's a front season and a back season. And if you shoot a dove outside of that time and a game warden walks up, it's expensive. I've never done that, but I have friends that have. And so there is a season for these things. But when he writes Timothy, he's not saying, Tim, there is a season for preaching and a season for shutting up. Tim, there's a season for preaching and a season for, you know, just study. This word that he writes to him is that it is always open season for preaching. It is always open season for doing ministry. It is always open season. Now think about that. Timothy's sick, he's run down, he doesn't have a whole lot of support there in Ephesus, and Paul writes to him, and the word isn't, Tim, when you feel good enough, when you feel strong enough, when you feel like all the things are coming together in your life and you have it all ordered out and you've got it on your calendar and your Excel spreadsheet and your secretary tells you your schedule is free, then, then you can go out and be a minister of the word. That'd be pretty nice. But Paul writes him instead and said, look, it doesn't matter if you're sick. It doesn't matter if you're hurting. It doesn't matter if people aren't supporting you. 
The word to you is, you need to be out there, you need to be ministering, and you need to be ministering the word of God. Now, he gives him three descriptors of what preaching really looks like, and they are reprove, rebuke, and exhort. But look at the way that he tempers them. Each of these is meant to be exercised with complete patience in teaching. Now, this idea of reprove, Timothy's supposed to to preach the word. He's supposed to to open up God's word and and, and apply it to people's life. And and there are times when he goes out and he finds people not living in such a way that reflects this. I mean, that's just, it's going to happen. How is he supposed to handle that? Well, the text tells us. The text tells us that he's supposed to reprove them. Well, what does that look like? See, he's supposed to come along Larry's life, and he's supposed to say, Larry, I've, I've noticed these things in your life, and man, would you, would you read God's word with me, Larry? Would you work through this? Show me, show me how you find validation for the things that you're doing. Because, man, I see your life. I care for you. I love you. I just don't see that. Larry flips over, and he, he starts seeking down the path to proof text, and he's going to pull text out of context, and he's going to seek to build this case for his life. Leanne's already told him it's a sham. He can't do this. Thank you, Leanne. But we recognize that, that, that I am working to, to, to show him that thing that he's invested his life in isn't true. It's false, that he's bought into false goods. And so I'm seeking to convince him to bring him back around the truth, but how am I doing it? You see, I'm tempering it with patience, with teaching. And so too, when we intensify the course and we come up to a little bit of rebuke. Now let's move off Larry, he's learned his lesson. Let's move off Larry. We'll go to Matt Timberlake. We say, Matt, man, Amy's doing this work at the Rafa and that's fantastic, but Matt, I just, uh, the things I hear about you, I can't even say them in good polite company. And Matt, let me just start with you. Do, you. do you see this in Scripture? And Matt's like, no, but it doesn't matter. No, but it doesn't matter. I can live my life however I want to. So I'm patient. And I'm teaching Matt, and I'm pouring out, and I'm going to him over and over and over again. I'm like, Matt, I don't see this. I don't see your life in the text. I don't see your life in the text. Find yourself in submission to the Bible. And for Larry, I'm seeking to reason and convince him and bring him out. Rebuke is all about coming into Matt's life and saying, Matt, stop. Stop. And you say, that's brash. How could I come into someone else's life and, and, and tell them to stop? My question to you is, do you love them? Do you consider them to be your brother and sister in Christ? Well, you very much have the call on your life to take the word of God and line it up and to ask questions of those you're in community with. Do I see these traits in their life? Do they see those traits in my life? We speak back and forth to one another through the text. We are driving one another to be in submission to Jesus Christ, not because we're a bunch of rule followers. And none of us can keep all the rules. All of us is gonna fail. But when we're a gracious, merciful body, And when I'm going out and I'm exercising patience and I'm teaching and I'm bringing along, do you see how healthy that is? 
who of us, if we had a, a child and we were steering to move them back along to the right road, would immediately move to a punitive action? We want our children to grow. We want them to be wise. And so every time they make a wrong decision, we don't just move in and have this desire to bring pain, to bring, bring torture, and to spank them. We want to move them back to the truth. We want to move them back to the center. We want them to grow in wisdom. We want them to grow in understanding. And just as a parent moves forward with complete patience and teaching, well, mostly patience and lots of teaching, so too the call of the one who would preach the word is to move forward with patience and teaching. You see, there is a problem in Ephesus. You'll remember that in our study of this book, we've seen over and over again that these heretics, that this errant teaching has come in, that it is steering people off course. They have lost the joy of their salvation. They have forgotten the main things of the text, and they've started chasing all this spurious teaching, this, this heresy. So Paul addresses that. Paul addresses that. You see, but long before Paul ever addressed this, lest you think that this heresy is strictly something locked away in Ephesus. If you flip over to Jeremiah, let's look at two places in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30, and the first part of 31. It says, An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. Makes you ask, oh no, is it famine? Verse 31, we find that the prophets prophesy falsely. And the priests rule at their own direction. And we see this horrible rebuke. My people love to have it so. My people love to have it so. What was the prophet supposed to do? He's supposed to teach the word of God. He's supposed to apply it to their context and show them how God would have them do certain things. What happens when the prophets prophesy falsely? They're speaking of their own accord. They're speaking things that sound good to them. They're leading the people not where God would have them go, but they're leading the people according to where they would have them go. And what's the response of the Israelites? They said they love it. As people of God, as people who Christ has died for, we should, we should absolutely be sickened when someone tries to lead us in such a way that it is against the word of God. Ezekiel addressing a similar setting. We read in chapter 33 and verses 30 through 32, God speaking to Ezekiel, he says, As for you, son of man, your people who walk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word that comes, what is the word that comes from the Lord. They're excited about it. Verse 31, and they come to you as people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. But they will not do it. They hear the word, they're excited, they talk about the word, but they won't do it. For their lustful talk in their mouths they act. 
Their heart is set on their gain, and behold, you are to them one like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. See, in this passage, we see a people who is moved to hear the word of God. That they revel hearing this thing. But there's no follow through. There's no, there's no action. They might even come to conviction. They might be sorrowful for the things that they hear that they don't see in their own lives. But there's no follow through. Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Timothy and Ephesus. When we turn our sights on today. And people are so afraid to say something negative about much of the, te- the teaching that we hear. But probably the most well-known, certainly the man with the most exposure, pastors south of here in Houston. Not picking on him. I'm not saying we should pick it outside his church, but I'm telling you, if you listen critically to the words of Joel Osteen, this man is playing fast and loose with the word of God, and he will lead you toward the path of myth. He will do exactly in your life what the heretics in Ephesus were doing to the lives of those that Timothy was trying to reach. Let me share a couple of examples for you. Writing in Your Best Life Now, Joel said these astounding words. He says, you have to begin speaking words of faith over your life. Your words have enormous creative power. The moment you speak something out, you give birth to it. Well, that sounds painful. He said, this is a spiritual principle, and it works whether what you're saying is good, bad, positive, or negative. You see, Joel is under this mistaken notion that the things I say can bring about cause. Now, who in Scripture can speak and things can happen? It's not a trick question. God. Who who in Scripture can speak and then things happen? Say it with me. God. Let me ask you one more time because I feel like we had some people that aren't just getting this yet. Who in Scripture can speak and things happen? God. Who else? Well, Jesus is God, so you got <laughs> It's the Sunday school answer. If I asked again, somebody say, Holy Spirit! <laughs> oh, you. Let me show you a little bit of what he does with, first, with uh, John chapter 5, and then we'll move back to the text. Man, I, I thought a lot this week about what level I wanted to go on this, and I said, you know... A shepherd of flock that is discerning, a shepherd of flock that is wise. But I recognize that so did Timothy. Timothy shepherded a flock that Paul had started. Timothy shepherded a flock that Paul had gotten in there. He had sweat, he had bled, he had almost died. And yet they chased after things and he had to address it. Turning to John chapter 5, it's this amazing account 
of this man at the well. Let me read the first nine verses, and then I'll give you Joel's interpretation. It says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades, and in these lay multitude of, of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. That is a long time to be an invalid. And when Jesus saw him laying there, he knew how long he'd already been there. And he said to him, do you want to be healed? Friends, if there was ever a rhetorical question, it is this one. The sick man answered and said, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. And when the water is stirred and while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. What an amazing display of grace. What an amazing display of mercy on the part of Jesus to come to one who could not affect change on his own. There was no amount of positive thought, good thinking, or, or crawling near the water that was going to get him there. He could not get there on his own. Turning to this text, Joel says that the guy's problem is that he was too down on himself. He was feeling sorry for himself. The paralytic, he says, begins listing all of his excuses. I'm alone. I don't have anybody to help me. Other people to let me down or other people always get ahead of me. Joel reads this and he says, this guy is just a downer. And turning to the very positive example of his sister who had risen from the ashes of divorce to lead newness of life, he said, see, he should have been more like my sister. And he could have healed himself instead of laying there for 38 years. There is no room for that interpretation. There is no room for that teaching in the word of God. See, the only thing that we have to trust and rely on is the word of God. God is the one who speaks and heals. God is the one who speaks and creates. This man was an invalid and Jesus used his inability to demonstrate mercy and grace to him. Not to highlight his inability to overcome his ineptitude. That's got nothing to do with this. See, it's not a situation that remains in Jeremiah or Ezekiel's today. It's not a situation that remains strictly in Ephesus, but it is a situation that plagues our airways, it plagues our churches, it plagues our friend groups, and you can see it over and over again on Facebook, Twitter, and everything else. Joel Osteen's ministry gets over one billion impressions a week. That is a billion, with a B, people going on and reading his Facebook rants and and Twitter rants and all these things. We need to be wise. We need to recognize that it is the word of God that changes lives, not some novel man's twist of it. Look what he says. Verse 3, he says, For a time is coming, and we could say is now here, when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. This is the situation he describes. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Tim, as you go in there and you begin to expound the word of God, you begin to preach the word, you need to understand that That certain people, they're not going to be able to tolerate it. They're not going to be able to hear it. 
And some of these people, when they leave and they, they go away from your church, it's got nothing to do with you, but it's because the word of God is offensive. It is offending them. And being direct, and, and you're seeking to rebuke, and you're seeking to reprove, and you're seeking to, to and exhort, and you're seeking to bring them along. And as you're doing these things, you're applying the word of God to their lives, and they can't hear it. The text tells us that they have itching ears. But read carefully. What is the litmus test for these teachers? These are teachers that are meant to suit their own passions. And so in Paul's day, they would go out and they would find teachers that would teach on some doctrine or expound on some special thing that they really had a desire to be the main thing of their religion. And Paul gives us this grotesque understanding that they're piloting them heap upon heap upon heap. See, it wasn't enough for them to hear from one man of God, but instead they wanted a mound of men to give them these tasty morsels that they could imbibe, that they could take down, that they could ingest. They're not following God. They're not seeking to be more holy. They're just chasing after their lusts following their passions. Verse four, we find out that they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And I've got a number of friends that this is exactly what's happened to them. Raised in the same churches together, all the same convictions, all the same things that we knew and, and, and somewhere along the way, they hear this teaching that just sounds too good to be true. So initially you ask the question, man, can you find that in the text? And they say, I don't need to find it in the text. This guy is better than the text. Can you, can you reconcile it with Scripture? Man, I don't need to reconcile it to Scripture. This guy is receiving revelation straight from God. See, nothing any preacher or teacher ever says should contradict the word of God. And when it does, friends, that is a clear indication that you need to quit listening to that person. That is a clear indication that you need to find somewhere else to be. And that is exactly what these people were struggling to do. They had turned away from listening to the truth. They had turned their ear actually away from hearing Timothy, and they had sought out those who had itched their ears. They had sought out those who would lead them in the way that they wanted to go. Paul tells us that the only other way is toward myth, is towards falsehood, is toward heresy. They turn from following Jesus to following Satan. If Jesus is truth, then Satan is a lie. You know, in the midst of this, Paul's just told him that he is to preach, that he is to do so boldly, that the substance of his teaching should be the word of God. And then he comes back to him at the end and says, look, people are going to bail on you because they don't want to hear sound doctrine. They can't tolerate it. For them, it is offensive. And what is Timothy's response in the midst of this? Verse 5 should be for every minister a verse to live by. In some ways, through the, through the troughs, through the valleys, and through the mountaintops, it doesn't matter. Paul writes to him and says, as for you, always be sober-minded. 
Timothy, you're gonna see people leave, you're gonna see people, pack, see people pack out and head out, you're gonna see people turn away from truth and follow myth, and this is what you should do. Stay the course. Keep your head. Be level-headed. Have clarity of thought. It says endure suffering. Timothy was already suffering. He was already feeling the effects of these people leaving, of these people throwing things back towards him. He was already feeling this tug of watching families be torn apart. He was, he was experiencing the anguish of seeing people suffer from bad decisions. And the word from Paul is to continue to endure. Stay the course. He says, do the work of an evangelist. He says, Timothy, as people pack out, as people follow myth, this is what you do. You stay the course and you preach and teach the good news. Man, there are people in Ephesus just as there are people in Greenville that needed to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified and him resurrected so that we might have forgiveness of sins. Timothy's task was to stay faithful and to do the work of an evangelist. Lastly, Paul uses a catch-all phrase. He says that, Timothy, you are to fulfill your ministry. See, Timothy wasn't working up to a certain number of church members. He wasn't working to a, to a, a certain size or feel or gut feeling. But the task for Timothy was to continue working all the way until the grave. So we recognize that his ministry could never be completed. It could never be fulfilled. God had called and Paul had recommended to Timothy and instructed Timothy that his call was one that should be stayed at until the very end, until he was called home. I was reading this week and I was reminded of one who I think really embodies this, this surety of course, who embodies this sober-minded endurance, this one who would fulfill the ministry. Now, Charles Simeon is a name that most of you are probably unfamiliar with, and he was a, a minister in the late 18th century. He went into a church situation at the Holy Trinity Church uh, in the UK, and he was not appreciated, is, is putting it mildly. You see, the church wanted someone else. They wanted Reverend Hammond to come instead, and... Because of their church polity, because of the way they were set up, they got someone else. And so Simeon went, and he said, he called his boss effectively and said, you're not going to believe this, but these people, they, they don't like me. They want this other guy instead. Tell you what, I'm going to be the bigger man, move out of the way, and you can, you can let Hammond take over. Well, his boss says, well, Charles, that's really nice of you but I'm not going to do it. If you leave, I'm not appointing this guy. Well, you'd think that Simeon would go back to his church and say, it's not me, it's him. Let's just make the best of this. And they would say, well, you know, you're not such a bad guy. You're ugly. That's when you read over and over again about Simeon, you'd read these descriptions of just how grotesquely ugly he was. Why historians thought that was fit to write about it, I'm not sure. So they would say, well, you're ugly but at least you're honest. 
No, Simeon went back and, you know, he explained this to them and they said, we still don't want you. And in those days, the end of the pews, they had doors. And so for the first five years or ten years of Simeon's ministry, they would keep those doors locked. And they wouldn't allow people to sit on those pews. Simeon said, I'm an engineering young man and I'll figure this out. And so he bought chairs and he put chairs in the aisles. Well, they didn't much care for that. And so they began pelting him with eggs and rotten fruit on Sundays. You see, they also had an afternoon preacher, and it was up to the church to pick their own, and they picked the other guy for the first five years. They wouldn't let Simeon preach. And he moves on, goes to another church. Simeon thinks, well, finally, I get to stand in and do this. No, they bring someone from out of town to pinch hit and do that same sermon. See, it took Simeon 12 years before things finally begin to calm down at Holy Trinity. And he was at that church an astounding 54 years. I've got to be honest, if you guys bring fruit and eggs next week, I don't think I'll make it 54 years. See, but he completely embodies permanency. He completely embodies what it is to endure suffering. Because he recognizes the call of Jesus is worth it. The gospel is worth it. So when you turn and you, and, you, and you look at your own life, and you've got family that are chasing after all these whims and passions, you've got all these difficulties coming to bear on you, you recognize that the gospel is worth it, that this suffering is worth it. So we recognize that the sum and substance and the total of our ministry here at Ridgecrest is its center around the word of God. Man, if we're going to be known for anything in our community, it's got to begin with the word of God. And it can't just be me preaching it. If I quit preaching the word of God, you fire me. If we've got a Sunday school teacher that's not teaching the word of God, we remove them. But if we really want that to be what we're known for, each and every member and visitor and person that walks through our doors needs to be confronted with the word of God. We need to do it with patience. We need to do it with teaching. But we need to be a church that's not just known as this preacher who gets up and teaches from the word of God, but a church who passionately follows and embodies, lives out, and tells others about the word of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us.